Oopsla podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla conference in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. Mesdames, Messieurs, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most extraordinary Wednesday in the history of Oopsla. The day will finish with our big event this evening on Boulevard Saint-Laurent, La Main, the Main, as they say in Montreal. You can take buses from the hotel at 7. You can walk over there, which I recommend. The event this evening is entirely oriented to the audience of Upla. We invite you to bring your computers, as many computers as you have. Dick Gabriel will be inviting you to show him the strangest thing you can show him from the web, your work, or whatever you have on your machine. You will make the big event. After last night, you have an opportunity to outstrange Dick Gabriel. I invite you to step up. But the day begins. The day begins an extraordinary program of talks. And it's a great honor I have this morning to introduce Fred Brooks. And in doing so, I can mention the three ways that Fred Brooks has touched my life. The first computer program I ever wrote when I was in high school and I say wrote in a very vague sense, was on a computer built out of components that I'd put together myself. And this, when I was still in high school, really fired me up about the possibilities that derive from the different ways you can put together the components which build a machine. About the same time, I started reading about computer architecture, a term I'd never heard before, and the name I heard associated with that term was Fred Brooks. And the design that was being talked about, the large general-purpose computer systems, where general-purpose at last actually seemed to mean something, were an inspiration to me. When I went to university and had some experience programming, I began to appreciate exactly how difficult software was. Well, that's, that's a bit of a fib in it, exactly how difficult. What does exact mean in a term like that? But it sure was difficult. And what's more, I learned that nobody seemed to talk about how difficult it was. And in fact, the software engineering course at my university was an object of ridicule. But thankfully, by the time I came to take that course, it was different because my professor said there was this new book out that had prehistoric creatures on the cover. And he said that it was the first book on software design worth reading. When I read that book, The Mythical Man Month, by Fred Brooks, I began to realize that it was possible to talk about the design of software, not as some sort of anecdotal mystery, but rather as something that was worthy of study and a field where it was possible to see that there were principles behind that. And I especially became an admirer of the style of writing, which looked deep and, above all, 
was honest about experience in writing about computer systems. And when I then used that book in my courses when I started to teach, that's the way that I recommended it to my students, as a book of insight and honesty about experience. Now, some years later, um, I had the good fortune to um, have an office beside a new colleague of mine, uh, Amos Amundi, teaching in New Zealand and Australia, who'd been a student of Fred Brooks. I was fascinated by this and uh, told him my experience. And this is when I learned a third thing. As a rather pragmatic kind of academic, students were in and out of my office all of the time, seeking bits of advice, getting problems. I was happy to address the problems in the best way and send their way. My colleague Amos made students wait outside his office, and he took a long time with everyone. And uh, interested in this, I, I, I went to talk to him. And Amos told me that a lesson that he'd learned at North Carolina from Fred Brooks was that it was part of his job to take time with every student, to take care with every student, and really try and help students see that it was possible to apply honesty, wisdom, and insight. And he said that Fred Brooks had showed him that that was part of his job. Ladies and gentlemen, Fred Brooks. Thank you. I appreciate that introduction. Uh, today I want to talk about collaboration and design <clears throat> because a buzzword, to use Dave Parnas's phrase, is telecollaboration, and I want to get to telecollaboration. I have, over the last few years, been studying the design process per se, and I'm working on a book of essays about that. Because in my own experience, I started life as a computer architect doing hardware and then managed the development of the operating system 360, and that exposed me to software design. And then I worked in applications programming, mostly interactive 3D computer graphic systems for protein chemists for about 30 years. And along the way, I've had the opportunity to do four building projects in which I did the design with my own hands and to be client for three more. And so the thing that struck me in these processes was the fact that the design process seemed to be, have many invariants that were true across the media. And so I thought, well, all right, let me try to understand that because those of us in the younger disciplines like software design might be able to learn lessons from the people in the older disciplines instead of having to learn them all the hard way. And so I set out to ask myself, what have been the big changes in the design process since the turn of the 19th to the 20th century? And these four seem to me to be the most important. First is, design is now team design in most cases. Second is, we talk about telecollaboration and distributed teams and they're increasingly common. The third point is that most designs are now sophisticated and the implementation technologies are quite sophisticated. And the fourth is that very few of the designers today can build the things that they designed. And this, of course, was not true in the 19th century. The, the Wright brothers were master machinists 
Uh, Edison did a lot of things in his own lab with his own hands. Henry Ford built his car himself. And how many of us could take a pile of sand and produce a computer? So the fashionable hot topics are telecollaboration and virtual design teams where the team is virtual. The virtual design studio enabled by the miracles of modern communications. But to understand telecollaboration, first we have to understand collaboration. And I find most of the papers about telecollaboration that are in the literature don't really begin with looking at the sociological and other questions involved with the collaboration. Now, the common assumption in the field, and this one is certainly common in all the papers, is collaboration is a good thing. All of us are smarter than any of us, and the more collaboration, the better. So the assertion I'm going to put forward today is that that is far from a self-evident proposition, and it's certainly not universally true. So I'm going to talk a little bit about collaboration and design and the central problem, and this is a theme you've heard from me before and will again, is to get conceptual integrity in the design itself when there are many minds working on it. And so the challenge is how do you do that? And then this raises the question of when does collaboration help? Now, if we look back then at the 19th century and the, and the things that happened, the Cartwright and the... And the Textile machinery, Stevenson, the train, Brunel's bridges and railway, Edison, Ford, the Wright brothers, etc. These were very largely the designs of single designers, or in the case of the Wright brothers, pairs. Who can tell us the design of the Nautilus submarine, the designer? Nobody. This is a team design product, and we don't even know the name of the chief designer. Now, if we look back at the history of human production and culture, most works of art have not been made this way. And that's true whether we look at literature, whether we look at music, although we have Gilbert and Sullivan. Notice that one did the words and one did the music. Brunelleschi's Dome, Michelangelo's tremendous works, the paintings, there are some paintings by two painters. One did the creatures and one did the landscape kind of thing. There's careful division of labor. And the exceptions to the, to the notion that most of the great works we know of were done by one mind are in fact done by two minds and not by teams. Increasingly over the years, for example, modern scholars now recognize that the works of Homer which originally were thought to be edited from many stories, are now thought largely to be the works of one mind. The works of the important poem Beowulf is now pretty well established as a literary work composition of one mind. As I say, the exceptions are two, and two is a magic number. There are many, many jobs in the world that are designed for two people. Uh, The carpenter and the carpenter's helper, the electrician and the electrician's helper. And I think our Lord knew what he was doing when he made marriage work for two. But now let's look at some of these magnificent works. Brunelleschi's Dome, and many of you have read, the, have read the book, was a tremendous creation. Technically beyond what people believed possible, 
He had to produce a working scale model before the people buying the project would even believe that it could be built. And notice the scale of this building in comparison with the surrounding buildings. Now, why, instead of doing things the single designer way, do we do them in teams today? And I submit there are several compelling reasons. And the first is the increased sophistication of every aspect of engineering. So if we look at Pritchett and Darby's first iron bridge, this is the first bridge made of iron, 1779, it's still usable, it's still strong. Look at how much iron is in it. Now compare that with men's Sunderberg Bridge, which is one of the most beautiful, and look at how much iron is in that for the span. The sophistication required to do that is very substantial. The pure amount of computation to make that structural engineering task conceivable and to make it stable in various winds and under various loads and so forth is almost mind-boggling. This is nevertheless, however, a design that is principally the result of one mind supported by a team that did a whole lot of the structural engineering. Now, I would, my observation is that there are no longer any naive technologies left in the West. I, uh, I did a lab visit to Unilever's laboratory in Britain, and to my amazement, I found a, a computational fluid dynamics scientist hard at work doing a calculation on a mixer for shampoo. CFD for shampoo? Well, it turns out that shampoo is a three-layer emulsion with an oil, then a water, then an oil layer. And the problem is to design the blade so they don't tear that up in the process of doing the mixing. Even the shampoo is a complicated and sophisticated structure. One of my brothers is, is in the farming business. and He says, I can... Do I spend as many hours on the computer as on the tractor? And nowadays there are farm machines, quarter of a million to half million dollar farm machines. And you go through the field and you send your soil samples in and you get the analysis out and you put that in the farm machine. And then it goes along and using GPS to know where it is plants the seed and puts the right amount of fertilizer with each individual seed depending on the soil analysis for that part of the field. And you thought farming was an unsophisticated technology. People who make paper out of trees, for example, know whether the logs they just got came from the north side of the hill or the south side of the hill because they have to change the recipe according to the characteristics of the trees. And the cook master at Sarah Lee Cake Baking says he needs to know where the wheat comes from in the flour that he's working with and has to adjust the cake recipe to get uniform cakes out depending upon where the wheat came from that goes in. Now, the second major reason why we do things in teams is hurry to get to market. We all know the rule that the first person to market with a totally new innovation tends to stabilize out with 40 or 45% of the share, and the rest is divided up among the come-laters. Uh, 
And this puts a high premium on once you decide you want to design something, go ahead and get it designed and get it to the market quickly. And this, of course, was not true as in the same degree in the 19th century. And then the third reason is if we're going to try to do things in a hurry and we need the specialized expertise, many hands make light work. Often. Many hands, on the other hand, make more work always. That is, the very process of dividing a task so it can be shared means we have to partition it. We have to now define interfaces between the pieces, which we never had to define. We have to then interpret and reconcile the different understandings of the interfaces by the participants on both sides of an interface. We have elements that are shared between the partitions, and we try to standardize those, and standardization committees take a lot of effort. We, try to, we want to get conceptual integrity, so we need a common style definition, and that means it has to be defined and not just grow. And then we have the integration and testing process. I visited a shipyard in Newport News, Virginia, and the, uh, the, the slogan from the men in the yard was, oh, yes, we get the plans from the engineers, and they've done a great job. We cut to plan, and then we bang to fit. And I think a lot of us in the software business have, have seen that same thing happen during system integration, except we didn't do it with sledgehammers. Now, the challenge of working on a team design, of course, is how do we get conceptual integrity? The thing that makes a design fun to use and easy to use and easy to learn and easy to change is, in fact, the conceptual integrity. And we've been over this example of the the men's bridges, and they are beautiful bridges, graceful in concept, and they reflect a unified concept. I'm an admirer of Seymour Cray's computers. My own design style for computer architectures pulls apart from Seymour's, but boy, has a pretty, pretty, pretty machines for what they intended to do. And they reflect a conceptual integrity because Seymour worked from the circuit level to the power supply level up through the Fortran compiler level and had intellectual mastery over the whole thing. And that meant that a Cray computer had a unified concept. Many of you have seen, and here's here's another example, Christopher Wren's St. Paul's Cathedral. If you go in St. Paul's Cathedral, in the very center there's a bronze ring that says in Latin, if you're looking for his monument, look around. And I think that's a, an elegant thing. Many of you have seen this table from the Mythical Man Month 20th anniversary edition. I went through and did a little mental exercise. And David Parnas, who's here, uh, utterly disagrees with my list, but that's all right. We've disagreed on things before and we will again. Uh, the items on the left are software systems which are characterized by the fact that they are passionate users. I call them fan clubs. These are not necessarily the biggest commercial successes, 
Many of the commercial successes are on the right-hand side, but I submit that I've never seen a fan club for any of these things on the right-hand side. Nope, that's not true. Algal had a fan club, all right? And Ada had a small fan club. (laughs) What's the difference between the things on the left and the things on the right? Why do we get delight from the things on the left? And, you know, how many people ever got delight from COBOL? Everyone on the left was designed by a single or pair of designers and has that conceptual integrity. Everyone on the right was designed by a design process with many minds and the kind of negotiation that says, I won't kill your great idea if you won't kill mine, and we'll throw them in whether they mix or not. Now, not everyone agrees. So I want to point out that there is even a book by Jack Stillinger called Multiple Authorship and the Myth of Solitary Genius. And he says, this is just hogwash. All those older things weren't really done by one mind. They're really mixes of, of teams. And so... You should, you should know that my version is challenged, okay? Now, how do we get conceptual integrity if we're going to do team design? The sophistication of the technology says we need the expertise of many players. The urge to market says we need the help of many hands. And so there are, in fact, books. And I quote one here literally that says the right thing to do is to see design not as a task of creating a design, but as an interdisciplinary negotiation around the table by the various experts. No, no, no. This is a sure way to make sure you don't get conceptual integrity in the design. And so instead, I like Harlan Mills' chief programmer concept in which he says the right way to put together an eight to 10 person team is you have a chief programmer and he, there is a co-pilot and the other people support the chief programmer so that the product will have conceptual integrity. Now, how do you do this with 200 people? Or how do you do this with 1,000, 1,500, 2,600, 3,000 people? As, for example, some modern software teams. I think the answer has to be, and I've spent four chapters on this, and I'm not going to spend any time on it today, it has to be a system architect. And so as soon as we get designs that are beyond the capability of a single chief designer, now we have to have a system designer who worries about how the pieces go together and, and how to preserve conceptual integrity across it. I once served as <coughs> consultant on a computer architecture project. I was brought in and the the company was making a proposed new machine and they spent the day briefing me on it. So the first hour the folks came in and talked about data representation. The next hour they came in and talked about arithmetic. Next hour about instruction flow. And I said, enough of that. Bring me the person who understands it all. And they said, didn't one. The manual was up to 800 pages. Now, what's the natural question? And where's the customer who's going to understand all that if there's not anybody on the design team who understands it all? 
It's inconceivable. It had the smell of death. You knew it would not survive, and it didn't. And that wasn't, that wasn't my fault. I didn't. I reported that it had the smell of death, but it was already, it was already dying. Okay. Now, the notion of the system architect is that he is the professionally informed and experienced advocate for the user. So, and this is true of a building architect is in, in each of these roles. That is, the professional expertise enables informed advocacy for what the user needs, but his task is to represent the user's needs and to try to satisfy the user's true needs in the best way that's possible. And as I say, chapters 3 to 6 in the Mythical Man Month deals with that. Now, I think another key notion is that the user interface of a software system critically needs a single-mind designer. I am an admirer of the way Google does things. There is one person there who is responsible for the Google page layout. She is the Tsarina in charge of the Google page. She's one of the, you know, handful of really top leaders of the company, but everybody recognizes that she is in charge and nobody makes any change in the search page of Google and its format without her approval. I think this is a, a way of ensuring conceptual integrity. And then the third technique that is of crucial importance is to document the assumptions made about, in particular, about the user. Everybody on a software design team will have a mental user model. And if there's no effort made on the part of the team leadership to have a single user model, there will be as many user models as there are people on the team. And each person will make the design decisions to suit their own version of the user model. Therefore, it's important to get the user model down on paper. Now, typically, the wider the set for whom a software product is designed, the more complex the user model, because the model is really a weighted sum of many different users. And so you have to both characterize the assumptions about the properties of the individual components, and then you have to characterize and agree on the weightings among them. It is much harder to design a general purpose object than it is to design a special purpose object precisely because you have to weight the different purposes in, in deciding. And you want to not only have a user model, you want to essentially have a shared uh, same application model and how you think that application is going to grow. It is characteristic, I find, of software systems that every software system grows into new uses. People use it at the edge of its applicability to try to do something they didn't have a tool for. And they, you know, make it work somehow. And then they send in a list of requested changes to make it work better. And so successful software products continually expand and grow. Now, 
Dave Parnas many years ago put forward one of his most important papers on designing software for expansion and contraction that says try to think about that tree of growth from the very beginning and you won't get it right but it is much more important to try to anticipate what that growth pattern will be and to share that assumption among the whole design team as well. And in my experience where we have successfully done that, it has enabled our, our ideas to be consistent. For example, the 360 architecture is still in use in the Z90 and the growth pattern. There was two, one really bad mistake we made in the very first design, and that was branch and link. We stuck some stuff, stuff in the high order eight bits in that instruction only when we knew we were reserving those bits for when we had to go from 24 to 32 bit addresses. Okay, that was just plain mistake. But we did plan to go to 32 bit addresses even though we knew we could not afford to do it in 1964. We goofed on the branch and link. And we knew that that would require changing the IO control word formats because there just wasn't room for them. It would require redoing them. But there was a plan for how it would grow. We did not expect it to grow to 64, but we gave that a little bit of thought at the time, even back when we were doing 24-bit addresses. Now, the motto, I think, on this business of both getting a shared user model across the team and a shared application growth roadmap across the team is it is better to be wrong than to be vague. The trouble with being vague is everybody reads it the way they want to read it. And now you no longer really have a shared model. And if you you have a concrete, specific set of assumptions written down and, and you've allowed them to be wrong, you're making guesses in many cases, at least if they're written down, they can be challenged. Moreover, one can do sensitivity analysis. And so you go through and you say, Which of these shared assumptions will make a difference in this design decision or in that design decision? And which of them marks next? Won't matter. Now, where do you invest your investigative effort? On the ones that turn out to have very high sensitivity. If the whole design is going to depend upon the accuracy of your assumption here, okay, you go do some research. You go do some testing or whatever to try to nail down the assumptions that of high sensitivity and you don't spend your effort trying to do that with the low sensitivity. And so it's much better to be wrong than to be vague in developing these assumptions. If one is asked, what is it that characterizes style? How is it that when we hear a piece by Mozart or by Handel or by Bach, In a few bars, we can tell who it's by. In a few bars, even if we turn on the radio in the middle of a piece. How is it that we can pick up a piece of literature and in a few pages can tell who the author is if it's one of the classical authors to whom we've had a lot of exposure? It turns out that the style is a collection of detailed micro-decisions. And it is characteristic of most people that they tend to make the same micro decisions the same way. And so I can look at a machine description and tell it's one of Seymour Cray's machines or it's one of Jerry Blau's machines or it's one of Gordon Bell's machines 
by essentially the machine style of these micro decisions. Now that means that if you're designing a new product and you want it to have conceptual integrity, one of the things you want to develop as the product goes along is a style sheet that documents the micro decisions so that everybody on the team makes them the same way. And one of the ways of accomplishing that is, of course, standard libraries of common parts. And that means the micro decisions are already made and the mere reuse of those parts accomplishes the uniformity. Now, I am often challenged, and with this audience, I hope I maybe get a a more vigorous defense, (coughs) that says, look, your notion of a system architect and of essentially centralized intellectual control of conceptual integrity is really wrong. And Raymond did a brilliant paper, which everybody should read and study, called The Cathedral in the Bazaar. And I know whose cathedral he was talking about. It's the frontispiece of chapter 4 in the Mythical Man Month. And he says, let's look in as a contrast to Unix development. Unix was developed by a totally different process. Rather than a, get its conceptual integrity from a single architect, and we can argue this, because it was, in fact, a single architect to start with, what we have is a user community in which many, many people have contributed pieces. And anybody who wants to can contribute a piece. And so people write pieces, they put them out, and each piece has conceptual integrity because it's typically done by one mind. And we have these pipes and filters and other mechanisms for providing the interfaces among the pieces. So there's a certain system conceptual integrity in how things fit together. But he says the real key is that we put things out in for mass, early, large-scale testing. And the, <clears throat> the ones that win are the ones that work and do useful things. And even if people, for example, two or three people will put out solutions to the same tool need, the market votes. And by adoption, chooses one or more. So we may have more than one C compiler, for example, in the Unix library, but different people can use different ones. Moreover, he says... The early large-scale testing means the bugs come out sooner. And many, in many cases, the people who find the bugs, because they were using the tool, because they had needed it to do work, go ahead and come up with a fix, at least a hack, but certainly, ideally, a fix for the bug, and publish that when they publish the bug. Other people can propose other fixes and the same market mechanism. This is the bazaar he's talking about. Market mechanism decides which of these fixes and chooses among these alternatives. So this is a direct head-on challenge to the system architect notion for conceptual integrity. Now, I'm an admirer of the paper. It's a very important paper and I commend it to you. But I want to address some of the argument. Notice that the whole notion of the bazaar is based on a gift for prestige culture as opposed to a software for for dollars culture. People contribute 
to the bazaar. And what they get back in return, it makes it worth their while to contribute, is prestige in the Unix community and prestige that carries over to their employment community. The next thing that needs to be remarked is that this is a prestige market among people who are in general being paid to do something else. That is, they are building other products and they are they in the process of building other products. They need a tool that the Unix library at this point doesn't have and they contribute that tool that they built and but they are you know, they're being fed anyway because they're doing other work. And so they don't have to have the dollars from the Unix community. They're getting them from somewhere else. The next thing to note is that in this case, the user does not need a knowledgeable professional advocate. The user is the knowledgeable professional advocate. The Unix community is writing tools they themselves use for jobs they themselves are doing and they are the tools whose needs, whose detailed needs arose in their own work and they have intimate first-hand rather than second-hand or derivative knowledge about what the user needs. So they know the requirements from personal experience and they have internalized those requirements rather than getting them off a piece of paper. This, I think, is characteristic is a peculiar set of characteristics of the Unix community. And I'm not sure the degree to which this bizarre model, effective though it is, generalizes to the larger software building task. And so the question I would leave you with is, look, you know, the FAA is working on a whole new air traffic control system, one that depends upon the fact that nowadays planes know where they are and they don't need radars on the ground and radar and radio communication to tell them where they are, much less to keep them apart. So let's design it so the fact that the planes know where they are and where each other are. And <clears throat> okay, that's going to be a massive piece of software. It is going to be a crucial piece of software that it worked right. Would you do it by the bizarre model? I would be quite afraid to. I would be quite afraid to ride in an airplane if it were done by the bizarre model. Now let's turn to the question of, all right, I have been knocking on the difficulties of collaboration and the question of how, when we have collaborative models, how we go about getting the conceptual integrity that it inherently imperils. How, when does collaboration big? When does it really help? And the first case is when we're in the process of determining user needs. And so if I'm sitting down with a group of users in which I'm, I'm a, the software designer and I'm not knowledgeable out, about the application, having several of us sit down with them and ask the questions, I have found always to be useful because different people ask different questions and we all are surprised and benefit from the answers that each other's questions have elicited from the subject matter experts. Then there comes the brainstorming stage where we know, we think we know, we never really know at this stage, but we think we know what the problem is, and we start postulating solutions. And this is a case where having more than one mind is a real advantage. In this stage, we want to explore radical alternatives 
And it's very hard to get a lot of radical alternatives out of one mind unless it just happens to be a, a really weird mind. But I would submit that the collaboration is not what you really want to have happen during conceptual design or during detailed design. And I think we want to distinguish the process of sharing design from the process of delegating design. And so what I find typically happens in a shared meeting is people will decide now all right, you go work on this piece and you go work on that piece and you go work on this piece and we'll come back and, and, and review and talk about each other's design work. Now, I do want to remark that among the agile development methods, in my own experience, pair programming is a win. The, the literature indicates that pair programming doesn't save you a lot of money. You know, the, the cost... It comes out between one and for, for two people doing a job comes out to between one and two times and maybe a little nearer two times than one time what it would have cost to have one person doing the job. So you have to save much money. But what the literature does indicate, at least with the experiments done with students, and that's, of course, a danger with all experiments, is that the error rate in payer programming may be one-tenth. And since so much of any any engineering project, software or otherwise, is rework of errors, if we can in fact cut down the initial injection of errors by payoff programming, that has paid for it many times over. And, and the results in the literature are impressive. And then the area where collaboration helps perhaps most is in design reviews. I visited a group <coughs> in Leatherhead, England that designs deep-sea drilling platforms. Very complicated. And they talked about how they used virtual reality as walkthroughs to, after they have completed a design to have the different disciplines who will be associated with manufacturing and maintaining the drilling platform see it and experience it because many of the same people who would, would do the building in the shipyard even though can, they can make out engineering drawings, they don't visualize the whole entity from the engineering drawings. And that's where computer graphics can really help in the communication between the engineers who do visualize from the 3D things from 2D drawings to the people who don't do that nearly so readily. And they gave an example. They said one, we were working on one platform and, and we were doing a design review and the painters who were going to maintain it in the ocean said, well, you better make that part out of extra heavy steel. <laughs> really? Why? Said, well, we can paint it in the shop before it's installed, but we'll never be able to paint it again. And so the salt spray, well, you better make it out of extra heavy steel. Well, needless to say, that that isn't what the engineers did. They went back and fixed it so you could get at it to paint it during the lifetime of the, of the drilling platform. And this is a case where... <clears throat> I talked to another team in a shipyard that did submarines. And they said the engineer had, had a task of designing a semi-cylindrical water tank. And it, it was designed with some 13 plates, including the end plates and the top plates. And the, uh, they were doing a virtual reality walkthrough of the submarine. And the guy in the shipyard said, oh, that's not the way we'd make that at all. 
said, we're in the business of making cylinders. That's what we do in our shipyard. So we would just roll that thing as a cylinder and saw it in two and then put the, the end plates and top plates on it. We'd do it with four pieces instead of 13. And this is the kind of thing where the multidisciplinary design review can be so rich. Now, a few caveats about collaboration in design. Real design is always much more complex than we see it presented in the textbook examples. For the textbook examples to be comprehensible, they have to be simplified. And real design, you know, even down to the fillets, is always more complicated. Real design demands change control. I heard just this week of a little startup organization that began their programming in a straightforward way with two or three people. And they were now getting to the point where they <coughs> had an unmanageable code base and they're having to you know, start over and introduce change control and introduce some kind of process because successful projects grow. And larger projects need controls that, small, that a one-person project didn't really need. And the la- last of these caveats is <coughs> collaboration is no substitution for what has been called the dreariness of labor and the loneliness of thought. The solutions to problems happen when we are off by ourselves wrestling with the problems. And that's why we come together for meetings and then we go apart for design. Then we come together for design review and then we we take the review results and we go off and think. And no amount of collaboration in the meetings, except for payers, I'll, I'll allow payers, is substitute for that thinking process. Now let's say a word about uh, telecollaboration. So you get more depth. Yes. You get the depth. Uh, That's right. And this is seven cameras that are be, uh, multiplexed uh, three at a time. I think uh, there's two at a time running. They're three at a time connected. Here are three people in three different locations seeing each other in three dimensions. My colleague Henry Fuchs built this telecollaboration system. And you really feel like you're there. Yes, yes. There's an ideal telecollaboration system. That is as ideal as money can make it. Why do we do telecollaboration? Because we need specialized skills. Once again, the sophistication of what we're doing and the different expertise is not necessarily co-located. Everybody has a place they prefer to live. And so every multinational high-tech company has... Every, most high-tech companies have multinational facilities because they want to harness, capitalize on the skills and abilities of people who prefer to live in different places. The third reason is, in principle, you can work around the clock. Now, I've seen that done successfully in developing engineering models of computers. I have never seen that done successfully in software projects. And then there are cheap labor reasons and political factors for distributing the work. Here is an example, a flying, now flying in regular production example of an immense telecollaboration project. And I went and interviewed Mr. Jeff Jupe, who was chief engineer of British 
aircraft about how in the world do you make this, make this telecollaboration work? The wings are designed in Britain, the fuselage in France, the electronics in Germany, and the, the landing gear in Spain, and so forth and so forth. It was very illuminating. I had done this with the 360 project in multiple labs, but I didn't have the integration problems that he had. And, and I said, well, he says, well, we do the obvious telecollaboration things. And then, and this is something I had done too, we have resident ambassadors at the other locations. And so the Bristol people have a fellow in France who's really the ambassador and reports directly to the Bristol people about what's going on in the corridors in France and vice versa. And because British aerospace has got airplanes, they fly an airplane between Bristol and Toulouse every day. Why do you do that? Because there's no substitute for face-to-face. On the 360 project, we, we had computers in four labs in three countries and so forth and so forth. I leased IBM's first transatlantic telephone line uh, the lessons I came away with are the cultural differences are really real. They're really real. And space-time separation is really real. And you better plan on it and allow for it. Face-time is crucial. Telecollaboration really works among people who already have spent a lot of face-time together. And it really works quite well in those cases. Absent that... Travel to get the FaceTime is worth what it takes. And people instinctively know that, and so the airplanes stay full. One of the experiences we had was designing a head-mounted display that was being designed jointly between the electronics in Chapel Hill and the mechanics in Utah. And one of the interesting things is it turned out that shared documents are the most important tool for telecollaboration, not modern technology. Voice is next, and video conferencing comes way behind. We found that the electronic designer was sharing with the mechanical designer in Utah the shared drawings both on the same desktop screen, and there was a full telecollaboration facility down the hall only 200 feet away, and neither of them left their desk to go use it the shared drawings and the voice over the telephone turned out they had spent a lot of face time together and that made a lot of difference. When do you video conference? Well, when you're dealing with really vital issues, when people are insecure to start with, when, for, when you're interviewing strangers. I've done this with search committees looking for vice chancellors for the university for various roles and it really is a great mechanism for a search committee to screen the candidates down to the last three that you're going to bring to the campus but you're going to bring the last three to the campus you're not going to hire based on the teleconferencing but you may go down from eight to three that way and then when organizational national cultures are really different video conferencing helps so we have Clean interfaces make a big difference, and that takes a lot of work. It's important that they be very clear who owns the interface at any point in time. And it may move sequentially from one to another, but you have an owner who is responsible and a predetermined mechanism for resolving differences of opinion. 
Now, one of the characteristics of the literature in telecollaboration is most of it is technology-driven and not need-driven. I found this really amazing. I did a little study on telecollaboration, the web study of the first 50 entries. 49 were on tools and education about telecollaboration, not on, in fact, anybody using it. Or on the process of collaboration, the social and intellectual processes involved. I did a library shelf study of 20 books. 19 were on tools. This is a thing that has been technology pushed, not application pulled. And I think we need to understand that in depth. So this is what I've talked about today. Collaboration, conceptual integrity, and when does collaboration help? And then how do we do the telecollaboration? So at that point, let me stop and take questions with as much time as you will allow. So. slide on the conceptual integrity examples, you made a passing reference that the ones on the left were not the ones that had the fan clubs, but in many cases were the successful products. Given that, just how much value is there in the conceptual integrity if the successful products don't need it? No. Well, look, there were, let's take COBOL. There were very strong forces to make COBOL market successful that had nothing to do with its excellence. COBOL is a language that was written, was designed to be read, not written. It was designed so that bosses could, see, could understand the code that people were writing. <coughs> it is a committed design. It does not have conceptual integrity, but it had the Department of Defense mandating it. And so talk to me about market success when you have a DOD mandate when DOD is a big customer. So there are many, many other factors other than the, the inherent excellence of a product to determine whether it's a market success. Uh, could you comment a bit on the time shifts involved in development teams working around the world? I've recently been working on a project between San Francisco and uh, Mumbai, 12 and a half hours difference. And there's an enormous energy consequences to one development team or the other is always exhausted. Uh, and as, have you found some time shift? I noticed on, on your airplane example, they were all within a few time zones of each other, it looked like. Uh, have any thoughts on that? And they messed up. <laughs> um, that, that was, in fact, a, a culture shift, the French we're using one CAD system, one version of the same CAD system, and the Germans were using a different version of the same CAD system, and they didn't know it. <coughs> when I was doing 360 hardware, my working day consisted of meetings, and then I'd go home and have supper and put the boys to bed and then come back and do the paperwork. And about midnight, I was ready to go home, <coughs> but I would always go down to the machine room where the midnight shift was taking over from the evening shift and four shift round the clock round the week debugging of machines and that process worked it was very instructive for me because there were no bosses there I found out what was really happening and 
the information content that had to be passed from the evening shift to the third shift was exactly the kind of information I wanted to know about. Where were we? Okay, and how was it coming? What was the bug rate? You know. But the, but the process was successful with four shifts. And I don't know a software process that works effectively like that. Uh, now, this electrical engineering is a 25-year-old discipline in software engineering. And maybe as we approach maturity, we'd be able to do that too. Now, it was the case, of course, that the people coming off the evening shift were exhausted. And the people going on to the graveyard shift were messed up in their sleep patterns anyway. Uh, and so th- that's an analogous, I think, to the problem you're talking about. But I think the answer has got to be that the interfaces have to be well enough defined that the overlap is not, is not extensive, that you don't spend hours talking to each other with one team dead and the other one alive, that you spend maybe an hour doing that at the overlap. In the machine business, it took 15, 20 minutes. But, uh, so that... That, that's what I would try. Now, where you have a 12-hour shift, that's really, that's really hard. Yeah. That's yeah, really we, hard. And we are using the ambassador approach. Uh, oh, the ambassador the approach only, is crucial. The only reason it's working at all. Yeah. And, you know, your ambassador tells you things that he wouldn't necessarily discuss with his host country. He's your ambassador. And he represents you to the people there. Oh, that, that's crucial. Oh, here, over here. Uh, there, there was a rumor going about a few years ago that you were rethinking Silver Bullet and that... Uh, we're having a panel at 11 agile, o'clock. Agile methodologies might in fact be that Silver Bullet, and I wonder about your current thinking. I, I'll be glad to elaborate at 11, but my, my take is that object-oriented programming is the near, has been the most successful of the of the things that have happened in the 20 years since the silver bullet paper. But I haven't seen the tenfold improvement in uh, productivity. Uh, okay, there are other folks who have been waiting longer. But oh, I beg your pardon. Okay, I didn't see the back microphone. Uh, the, the concept of uh, conceptual integrity um, is, is very important. Uh, but there is another concept that is uh, very challenging, which is interoperability among uh, different models. Even though, if they are, they have conceptual integrity individually. Yes. You want for them to interoperate. Yes. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I, I mean, this is the problem of putting the wings on the fuselage. You you really have to make sure those interfaces are quite sharply defined. <clears throat> to get the interoperability, and so the interoperability requires a design effort all its own, quite apart from the conceptual integrity of the pieces. But I want the system to appear to the user as a unified thing, and I want the user to be able to deal with a, a minimum number of concepts in in looking at the system as a whole. And so that that requires, I think. System conceptual integrity. Yeah. Uh, oh, thank okay. you. First, I got to say, my hero since I started your book has been the guide. Thank you. And my, my question is why isn't this stuff obvious? There seem to be a lot of folks whose responsibility is to direct the organization who really love to put together the committees and do the social engineering 
And there's a real meme in the culture that goes the other way, even though I really, really believe in the one person's vision uh, uh, viewpoint that you've so well talked about today. Dave Unger here, thank you. Well, one of the things I think is encouraging about the software engineering discipline is that increasingly the bosses are people who have done it themselves. Whereas 25 years ago, the bosses were people who had done other things but didn't, had, typically had not built software with their own hands. And so we're growing up in that respect, and that helps a lot. But, look, bosses are under a lot of pressures. And, and some of the pressures are, in fact, purely social and political pressures. And it takes a lot of guts to stand up. Uh, I, I was advisor to uh, Princeton when the president of Princeton faced a very difficult question of, are we going to change Princeton so it admits women? And he did a very bold thing. He appointed a committee to investigate all aspects of that. He appointed a one-person committee. He gave him carte blanche to go anywhere and get any facts in the university. He charged everybody with helping him. But he said, Bill Bowen, who was a professor of economics, it's your job and you have a year to make a report to cover all aspects and recommend to the trustees what they should do. Harvard managed successfully, most successful management of its endowment was done through the years in which there was only one person responsible for the billion-dollar endowment. And he happened to be president of State Street Investment Trust, and people asked him, well, how did you manage to multiply the Harvard endowment ten times during your, during your stay? He said, oh, I just sat at my desk at State Street, and when something good came along, I bought a piece for Harvard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Sir David Davies, former president of the British Royal Academy of Engineering, was appointed as a one-person committee to investigate the big rail crash in the station there. And he managed to do a complete comprehensive and knowledgeable report, even though railway is not his field, in two months. And I, talk, I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago, and he said, I never could have done that if there had been a committee. It takes management courage to make that kind of commitment. Control Data did it with Seymour Cray. And, you know, just let him go do it. It takes management courage, but there's no substitute for it. It's very effective. Thank you. Um, your, your last point in your presentation where you said that there's too much effort being put into tools for, for telecollaboration. Not, not no, I didn't say that. I said that the effort, the effort on telecollaboration is principally on tools by people who have technical ideas they think will help. Rather, it is technology pushed rather than application pulled, and therefore many of the tools are utterly irrelevant. What I'd like is you to elaborate on the kind of elaboration pull that we need. No, collaboration no, pull. No, I mean collaboration pull, I'm sorry. I, I think, application pull. I, think, I think more careful analysis than I've done here as to when collaboration helps, what the social problems of the collaboration are, and what the technical problems of the collaboration are. The, the fact that in our own laboratory we see people not using the televideo but instead relying on the drawings and the telephone tells me, you know, we spent our money on the wrong thing on that big T1 network to Utah. Uh, back. Hi. 
So one of, one of the key problems with large team, of course, is integration. And you, you talked about that, but I wonder what your thoughts are on potentially using things like test-driven development and continuous integration for large-scale collaboration. And also, what are your thoughts on potentially these things to help uh, curb complexity in software? Well, continuous integration makes a lot of sense to me because it means that you catch, you catch your troubles very quickly. The, the build-every-night kind of syndrome is a lot of work, but it does seem to me to be a productive, not syndrome, but uh, method of operation. It seems to me to be a, a, a sensible thing to do. That's, that's occurring at a downstream stage, and I've been thinking more at the upstream design stage, and I really don't know. I, I really don't have anything useful to say on that. What about TDD? I mean, just generally, do you think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a right way to build software in large software? TDD? Test. If the tests are derived from the design, yes. All right. If the tests are just tests, no. All right. The tests don't get conceptual integrity into a product. What they ensure is that the product does what you thought you were writing it to do. But the question of whether you were writing it to do the right thing, the tests don't answer at all. Number three, maybe. Number three? Oh, really? We haven't had anybody from number three. Okay, okay. All right, go ahead. You're the, you're the boss. Uh, <laughs> me? Good. Uh, well, let's, let's see if I can not do two or three questions running together here. I, it, um, I'm liking the idea that, uh, of, a, of a single architect and a, and a strong conceptual design, but I heard you talk about an architect as a designer, but then I also heard the idea of a, a single UI designer. I like the idea of a user advocate. And I'm struck by the difference between building architects who, who design both the way the building looks and the way the building is engineered. Is there something different about software that means that the, the people who design the inside of the system can't be the people who design the outside of the system? No, and, and I think, in fact, that you want your overall system architect to maintain that concern both with the implementation techniques and with the interface. What I observe with architectural teams on the big buildings I've been associated with is that there is a person who is responsible for how the building looks, what they call the design, and he is also concerned with the structural integrity, but he doesn't spend much of his time on that. Somebody else does that uh, on the team, under him. And then they frequently contract part of that out to a team of structural engineers. So... It's very like software engineering in that you're talking about so many design decisions that one, one person can't really make them all, but you want one person to be in control of them all. So as a UI person, it sounds like the, I like the idea of the UI person driving. No. <laughs> is, it, no. is that what I heard about the buildings? Or basically the person driving the, the look of the building might drive the, the engineering inside. Frank Gehry's team would do it that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, and so it depends on what you're doing. So if, if in fact, your product is one in which the UI is going to be extremely important to how it's used, sure, all right? If, in fact, your product is being used to run the machines in the basement and only a UI is maintenance people once a month, 
well, then you wouldn't do it that way. You would concern yourself with performance and other attributes as primary. But you want a system designer who is trying to decide what those priorities are. Yeah. Makes sense. Sounds like a music and lyrics thing, kind of. Thank you. So I was struck by your comment that you wouldn't want to use the bizarre model for the air traffic control system. And I was uh, thinking about the general problem of building big systems and, and say the way the telephone system works, there isn't a single design team. Instead, there's a process of designing standards and then you have all these individual teams that are building things that work together with each other through the standards. So, for example, the air traffic control system, we could say that the federal government was going to build a system for keeping track of where all the different airplanes were and so who was in which sector. Airplanes, because as you said, they know where they are, they can register with the system and say, I'm here, who's in my neighborhood, and then they're told about that, and it's up to them. There would be a set of rules for if you're coming from the right, you have precedence over someone. It's just like, I mean, they often, I think they have rules now for, uh, for deciding precedence. And then you can let individual design teams uh, for, from the uh, aviation companies build a good, good algorithm. There has to obviously be a certification process well, that, and everything else. Well, you just described an overall system design that somebody had to postulate. Sure, but, th- but, that's, but, that's, right. a lot, but that's a lot different. That's a lot different from at least what way it's been done in the past where you try to have a single team that does something that's going to be running on well, all I, different Well, first parts. place I would challenge your assumption about the telephone system. I work for Bell Labs for one stretch when the ESS was just being done new. And ESS was very much a structured system in which there was a design. Now, they had to adapt to to all the technology. The rule at Bell's system at the time was anything new has to accommodate everything up to 40 years old, but anything 41 years old and over, we don't have to accommodate. And so ESS had a very complicated set of interfaces with these old relay systems, these old step-by-step systems and all that. But ESS was being designed as a conceptual system to handle the whole central office operation. Sure, but the, I'm talking about the telephone system as a whole, and that's done through standard committees and, and all, right? It's an eight- no, it was done by monopoly. <laughs> well, and then, and only then, in, in, the, and only then in, in the U.S. Only in the U.S. They didn't uh, control Europe. There were several monopolies in Europe, one per country. No, I, I submit that what we have is now is inherited, in, inherited in many pieces a system that that in fact had a central had a central design. Okay. Yeah, I have a question uh, regarding. Um, the number of systems architects we get in large systems. It seems with your approach, only a few people will be the system architects, which might be the heroes in the projects. So as a side effect, I saw in reality a lot of frustrated programmers just doing ordinary labor, nothing creative. Um, It might just be an impression they have, But I really see in reality a problem that most of the programmers want to be system architects, and with your approach, they can't. So how to deal with that? That's why I call chapter four, uh, maybe it's five, aristocracy, democracy, and system design. Because you're quite right. Now, it turns out there is as much room for invention 
at the implementation level as there is at the design level. And the whole question of what algorithms, what data structures, what whole different approaches to implementing a different piece has just as much room for creative activity as the system design. Now, if, if people don't perceive that, then it is part, I think, of our technical community's mission to help people conceive that. And I think it is an important part of the project manager's job to make sure that that level of creativity is advocated, recognized, compensated. Okay, because it's just as important in a Frank Gehry building to get the structural engineering right so the building stands up. A professor of architecture that once said to his class, this was a two generations ago when the class was all men. He said, boys, if you can build a house that'll keep the rain out, you've done well. Well, you know, that is, don't tell to me about how I was, the architect was talking to me about one I had proposed in which the roof was like this. And he said, you may find a contractor who can fix that roof so it won't leak, but I don't believe it. Well, I, I, I changed my design to one that, you know, because yes, the implementation is is what makes the thing really perform and and there are many different alternative implementations and that's a, that's a key concept and designing the right implementation is just as creative as designing the system design so i've got a whole chapter on that question and uh, on on the social question of put of does it mean that we've got all these drones in the hive here who are cranking away at the pieces that come down from on high? No. Okay. So uh, you're one of my heroes, so thank you very much for, for talking. Uh, I really really appreciate you coming to Uppsala and, and uh, speaking to us. So my question was about preserving conceptual integrity as things age, rot, grow more complex... Because the architect or set of you know, key architects on major parts don't always keep living with the systems in any wisdom. Or even living. Yes, right. That's right. So what's – how do you – I mean, that's a difficult challenge, particularly with long-lived systems. It almost seems easier to me if we could just blow up parts of them and redo them uh, for some reason rather – because it gets very difficult – to preserve conceptual integrity as a lot of changes are added. So your thoughts many, are- many of you will be familiar with the classical paper, must be 30 years old, by uh, Les Bellotti and Manny Lehman on increasing entropy in mm-hmm. they tracked it in an operating system as it <laughs> went by. And, and, the, and the point is you do have to, from time to time, refactor to get the entropy back down. And that is a piece of creative implementation but also you really want there to be at any given time a system architect who understands where it's coming from and where it's going to and is concerned with the conceptual integrity Uh, the Linux community is not completely loose all right. Oh, Thorvald is still active at trying to maintain conceptual integrity. Ken Iverson did this for APL as long as he was alive. All right. Uh, and the example I cite in the book 
is of a cathedral that was in which eight generations of architects over 200 years followed the same original plan. And there's only one such cathedral I know of where that kind of conceptual integrity was maintained across generations without the new guys saying, oh, I know how to do that better or a different style is now in. Okay? But, but it can be done. Well, yeah, the thought occurs to me, uh, you know, Henry Petrosky talks about how technology, you know, when it first starts out, we know how to do it, you know, because we know its limits. And then the new guys come along and build spans that uh, so... That fall in. Yeah. (laughs) So how do you instill that in a a culture that wants to... It's nice, but the old guys are going to go away at some point, so... (laughs) Gee, thanks. <laughs> I consider myself. I consider myself in that camp too. I've been to every Uppsala, so I'm one of that camp too. So, yeah. Well, I'm doing the best I can to instill it into culture. All right. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Um, there's. It seems to me. I'm, like I'm trying to figure out whether you're advocating big upfront design when there's been quite a movement over no, the last. No. 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 I, I'm part of what I'm saying in the book of essays I'm writing is re-emphasizing the fact that you cannot, that it is impossible to know the requirements when you start out. That the requirements only emerge during the design process. And therefore this... What about during the implementation process too? Indeed so. Indeed so. Um, and, and so I am not an, I am a fierce opponent of the waterfall model. All right. Yeah. Uh, from your talk, I understood that you had examples with software only and other systems like aeroplanes, including mechanical parts and electronics and all these things, and I like that, yeah? But being a software person myself, I got involved more and more recently with these more general systems people, and I found that they, I mean, I observed they have a lot of trouble with understanding software. So, I mean, my questions now, do you see differences between these kinds of systems, software-only versus general systems, or what is your observation on this software being special or something like that? When I left IBM, Tom Watson had me down to one of these one-on-one meetings in the executive dining room where he tried to persuade me I didn't want to do that. And, but he asked this question. He said, you've managed the hardware part of this project and you've managed the software part. What's the difference? And I said, I don't know. I'll think about that. And that's where the Mythical Man Month came from. It took me five years to think that through. The, the quick answer is managing the two kinds of things and designing the two kinds of things is more alike than software people think. It is more different than the hardware people think. And, 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 and the difficulties have to do with the intangibility and the perceived malleability of the software that says to the client and to the boss, well, we can change the spec. This is just stuff, all right? Whereas you wouldn't think of doing that on a bridge, all right? And so the perceived malleability of what we do subjects us to many difficult change pressures 
that do not occur in other engineering fields. Not only external, but internal, inside the team. And so the whole notion of progressive congealing of a product is one that's necessary in software, whereas it, it just naturally happens in various other hardware systems. So there are many differences, and, and I think we, we have to comment on those. Uh, I'm trying to see what lessons we can learn from the commonalities. And those of you who are working in the field every day, you know more about the software differences now than I do, because I haven't worked in this field in 10 years. We'll have one last question. Um, the way software systems are built these days in many areas uh, is by using frameworks. Um, these frameworks come with a de facto model for which there might or might not be conceptual integrity or in the model. In the model, correct. In the frameworks themselves. So, so therefore, important systems are built on top of these frameworks. Uh, so the argument would be, the challenge would be, can one really ensure conceptual integrity for the whole system, a whole system that is built on a framework for which conceptual integrity may or may not be there? Sounds like a strong argument for looking real closely at the framework before you choose which one to go with. <laughs> the, the answer is, Sure, if the basic thing doesn't have any, if the framework itself doesn't have any conceptual integrity to start with, it's going to be hard to build on top of it a thing that does. Although it might still be possible to build a user interface that does. Do you know any that has some uh, indication of conceptual integrity? And a flawed framework? No. I, I mean, I, don't, I just don't know. Ha haven't been exposed enough. I'd like to thank Professor Rooks again. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla Podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla Conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla Podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla Podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>